Missio, your scriptures from the book of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. When I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. Good to have you. Uh, I love starting church, which is a very strange passage of scripture to make everybody nervous. <laughs> My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, as Heather said, it is so good to have you. Um, love to meet you and to chat with you and to celebrate with you. Um, today, as we mentioned, is Palm Sunday. And in the biblical story, Palm Sunday is the day we celebrate Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday because in that moment, the people of Israel are waving palm branches and they're laying the palm branches down before Jesus to herald his victory. And that moment actually comes from an earlier period in Israelite history where palm branches were waved in a different victory and a different moment. And so it has this imagery and this beauty to it that celebrates a, a victorious king and a hope for a nation to be restored. But if you've read the story of Palm Sunday, it is a weird moment. It's a peculiar moment, to say the least. 
Because you have all of these images and all of these entrapments of regal victory, of majesty, of kingliness, and yet when Jesus actually enters into Jerusalem, he does so in poverty. He's riding a borrowed donkey, maybe stolen. (laughs) Borrowed. He's riding a borrowed donkey. And he enters into Jerusalem, and it is regular folks who are celebrating him and heralding him as the king of Israel. And he has no army, he has no politicians, he has no pomp, there's no wealth, there's no floats. It doesn't look at all like Aladdin when he comes into, you know, there's none of those things. No dancing elephants at all. If you're God, you can do it. And the story ends not in enthronement, at least not in a traditional sense of how enthronement is thought of. It ends with Christ on the cross. Jesus enters triumphantly, but it doesn't look like the triumph that we often expect. Jesus is heralded as king and Hosanna, connecting so much to this hope and this story that Israel carries, and yet it doesn't look like they expect. And we say that in this moment, Jesus is victorious, and yet that victory doesn't look like we expect. In fact, it mostly looks like defeat in many ways. The king who would enter triumphantly would end that story on the cross. It's such a peculiar moment. And it is a peculiar moment that I think is so illustrative of all of Jesus's life and ministry, of the God who would be born in a manger, the one who would give up, empty himself in order to become human, to take on the form of a servant, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. It's so descriptive of how Jesus does so much of his work and life, and it feels like a perfect entrance into this conversation that we've been having throughout the whole season of Lent on the cross of Christ. That imagery of humility and peculiarity and victory and defeat finds its ultimate culmination in the cross. Sometimes theologians will even call the cross victorious defeat. Something victorious is happening. Somehow the forces of darkness or evil or sin or whatever is being undermined and overthrown, but it doesn't look like what we expect. If you've been with us the last couple of months, or I guess the last couple of weeks, throughout our season in Lent, what we've been doing is looking at the cross of Christ and studying what we call in theology or biblical studies or what the Bible calls atonement. And at the heart of atonement is just a question, why did Jesus die, and what makes it good news? Seems like a simple question, and yet, as we open up the door and enter into that question, what we find is that there's a lot of beautiful places to look. And throughout the Bible, the writers of the Bible use different imagery to help us understand what the atonement is, why Christ died, and what his death accomplished. Last week, Heather talked about reconciliation. This is imagery and these descriptions of Christ reconciling all things to himself in his death and resurrection. The week before that, we talked about the biblical imagery of redemption, which shows up in jubilee and forgiveness. And today, in honor of Palm Sunday, and as our last installment in this conversation, I want to look at the biblical imagery of victory and rescue. All throughout the writing of Scripture, we see victory and rescue imagery applied to what Christ is doing on the cross. 
In fact, you might be able to argue that victory imagery is the most prominent imagery that is used to describe the cross in the Bible. But like Palm Sunday, it is strange. How is Christ victorious in his defeat? What is Christ victorious over? What is the victory of the cross? This imagery is so prominent that it leads to, throughout the historic church, to one of the most dominant and long-held theories of atonement. Throughout the series, what we've been talking about is there's biblical descriptions of atonement, and then there is theologians who come alongside afterwards to try to understand the mechanism of atonement. What is happening, and how is that thing happening in Christ's death? And in the early church, a theory of atonement emerged called Christus Victor, which is that if we want to understand what's happening in the cross, what we finally and primarily should see is that Christ is gaining victory over the enemies of humanity and the enemies of God. Sin, death, shame, guilt, all of those things are overcome in the cross. And that imagery shows up all throughout Scripture, so you can't just get rid of it. It is everywhere. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul the Apostle has this very beautiful declaration where he says this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He what? He gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So somehow in the cross, Jesus has become victorious over sin and death and guilt and shame and all the things that are waging war on humanity. Somehow in his sacrificial love, he's disarmed, overcome and gotten rid of it. Now, that's true throughout Scripture. We're going to look at that today. That is unquestionable. Where the theory begins to come into place is how that plays out. What does it mean for Christ to be victorious over? An early church theorist believed that somehow Jesus is victorious in a fight or a war against the enemy. But this leads to maybe one of the biggest contentions that happen with this theory, which is, if you are God, why do you have to fight a war against anything? You know what I mean? Like, if you can just unthink things, how do you really have an enemy? If you can just change the game, how can you possibly play the game? So to say. And so this becomes one of the earliest contentions of Christus Victor, which is like God doesn't have enemies, God doesn't have rivals, God doesn't have anything he has to overcome. And so it can't really be that Christ is getting victorious over some kind of enemy because God has no real rivals that must be overcome. God doesn't have to do anything, God is God. And yet, throughout Scripture, this victory imagery remains. So what does it mean for us? And so today the question is simply this, what is the victory of the cross? What is Christ victorious over and why does it matter for us? Because that imagery remains and yet I do think that question is important to wrestle with. And so to help us understand this, we're going to begin in that very beautiful but very strange passage of scripture that Sandy read for us this morning, Revelation chapter 5. A revelation is a letter that's written to a handful of churches in the New Testament that are experiencing increased pressure to be followers of Jesus. 
And that pressure leads to different things. Some people decide they don't want to be Christian. It would be easier just to participate in the Roman world. And some people are trying to hold on to their faith, but they're having trouble finding hope. They are discouraged. Most of the original leaders of the church are dead and gone. And so it's a difficult moment to be a Christian. And so the writer of John has this vision that is meant to empower and encourage. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of things in this vision that can be distracting, and the point is to encourage, inspire, and lead people to worship in a difficult and trying time. And here's how the vision begins. Verse 1, the writer of Revelation, known as John, says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It had writing on the front and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The scroll for John is a symbol of God's rescue plan. It's the hope that God has some plan, some idea, something that he's going to do in the world around him. And so this imagery is sitting before John, and he's like, I see the hope of the world. I see the rescue plan. I see the victory of God, and yet it's so far away because nobody can open it. Like, there it is. There's the answer to the questions that we've been asking. There's the answers to the questions that our hearts and our longing and our soul and our culture is asking, and yet no one can open it. And so John begins to weep. Of course he would. He weeps because no one can open the rescue plan of God. So John begins to weep, and then an elder, it says, comes to him and says, hold up. So one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged, here's our word, victorious, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now this imagery is maybe not that familiar to us, but that language, lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, is so deeply connected to uh, Israelites' hope and history and values. It's like describing an epic king, an epic superhero, a hero that you've been promised and you've been hoping for. It's all that imagery mixed together. And so when John is weeping because he sees the rescue plan of the world before him and no one can open it, the elder comes and he says, hey, don't worry. The king is coming. A warrior is coming. The root of David, the hope of the world, this epic figure is about to arrive and take the scroll and open it. So it sets this expectation in John's mind for what he is about to see. But then what happens? What does John actually see? John looks and sees not a lion, but in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, not a warrior. I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. This is not what John expects. 
It is not what the Roman world expects. And honestly, it is not what 21st century Americans expect. That in the place of the great king or the great warrior, you would see a lamb that was slain. This defies those expectations like Jesus in poverty entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. But what does the lamb do? It says he came forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, everyone began to sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And by your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In week one of this series at one, we laid some important foundational ideas. And the first one we said is that God always looks like Jesus. And the second one is that on the cross, we see a perfect snapshot of God's nature and God's work. And as that is true of how God always operates, it must be true of how we conceive of the victory of God. It always looks like the cross. It always looks like self-giving, sacrificial love. God does not stop being like Jesus when he gets to the throne. God does not stop being like Jesus when it comes to overcoming the enemy. God does not stop looking like Jesus when it comes to securing the victory of the world. The way it happened in this moment is the way it continues to happen through self-giving, sacrificial love. That same upside-down sacrificial love of God displayed in Jesus defines his victory. This is literally the most important thing I could possibly tell you. God looks like Jesus, God acts like Jesus, and it never changes. God looks just like Jesus. God moves just like Jesus. Jesus and God's victory looks and is achieved by Jesus. It is both accomplished in the sacrificial love of Christ and it looks just like the sacrificial love of Christ. The victory of God is accomplished on the cross. It is the one and achieved by the one who is the lamb who was slain. And that challenges our expectations. It challenges the way we think. We often want to look for the lion. And the gospel story subverts our expectations by showing us that it's actually the lamb. That leads, though, to an important question, which is how does the cross secure victory? We have this imagery of that Jesus is worthy to open the divine rescue plan because he was slain and that he always looks like the lamb who was slain, but how does the cross secure victory? And I think this is an important question for us to wrestle with because so often when we look at concepts or ideas like sacrificial love, we write them off as unable to overcome. And yet it's the very center of the Jesus story. So how does the cross overcome? How does the cross secure victory? There's this moment in Colossians 2, verse 14 through 15, that I think uh, says what this moment in Revelations is describing. Paul is writing another letter to a church, and he says this. 
Jesus on the cross destroyed the record of debt with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. We looked at this two weeks ago. And then he says this, which I think is a marvelous sentence. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hmm. Jesus disarms. An interesting word. When I was a kid, uh, it's a story time. <laughs> I just wanted you to understand the transition. When I was a kid, I did a lot of martial arts, which I know you can tell. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's so hard to imagine me being in karate. Uh, I did a lot, though. And here's what I learned. Here's what I learned, basically. There's two philosophies of martial arts. Uh, they're pretty complicated, but I will try to make them as simple as possible. Here's the first philosophy. I call it punch you in the face. The idea of punch you in the face is that if someone is coming at you, or if you're in like a fight or in a defensive position, you use equal commensurate force to stop an opponent. So he comes at you, you punch them in the face. Right? It's the primary philosophy of superhero movies. You use force to stop force. Equal, similar, coercive kinds of force. You stop it using them. And we do this all the time in other places besides martial arts or karate. We use this kind of force to write laws, to hedge in and protect us in like normal, real-world society. A speeding ticket is this same kind of force. You build a limit or a wall around how fast people are allowed to drive in a certain kind of area. It's a force with consequences that help us understand how we live together and what we do together. There's goodness in that kind of thinking. But there are real limitations to punch-you-in-the-face philosophies. For example, we know from psychological research that if I tried to argue you into my position, you are more likely to get entrenched in your own position than come to mine. That's like academic, intellectual, force meets force. If I try to argue you, if I try to yell at you, if I meet you on the street and try to convince you through force of words, more likely than not, you will get entrenched in your own position. I can't force you to agree with me. And more importantly, I can't force you to like me. I can't force you to love me. Force has its place in society and culture and relationships all the time. But the limits of force, the limits of that kind of karate, is that it can't help you love me. It can't help us do right relationship together to change our attitudes, our perspectives. It doesn't create much room for healing and wholeness. So there is another kind of philosophy in martial arts. And you see it in martial arts like Aikido. And I was looking at what Aikido means recently, and, it, and it's hard to translate, but it basically means the way of unifying forces, which is very fun. And in a martial arts like Aikido, the idea is that you use the force of someone else against themselves. I provided a picture here, <laughs> in case you couldn't understand. So when I was a kid, I did martial arts. 
My mom is the person who really did martial arts, though. She wanted me to do martial arts with her, but she was really the person who did martial arts. She loved it. As soon as she was 18, it was the first contract she signed. She was like, Mom and Dad, I'm signing up for martial arts. There's nothing you can do about it. And they were like, okay, that's fine. So she signs up for martial arts. She loves it. And when I'm about 11, my mom is dating my stepdad at the time. He's over at the house, he's hanging out, they're working on something. I can't remember, but they're dating. This is an important context for this story. And she's like, hey, Mark, uh, I want to show you something. He's like, okay. And she's like, grab me from behind. And he's like, okay. So he comes up and he grabs her from behind, like a huge bear hug. And I cannot tell you how fast the thing changed but in an instant, all you hear is this loud clap as my soon-to-be stepdad is laying on the ground in front of my mother, starstruck and, I guess, in love at that moment. And she is this, like, 100-pound, one woman just flipped him right over her shoulder onto the ground. My mom did that by using his force, his momentum, his own strength, against him. That's how a martial arts like Aikido or Judo works. My dad lands on the ground disoriented and disarmed, having his own force, his own might, his own strength used against him. If you've ever been in a situation like this, it is so disorienting to have your own strength used against you. It's like when you go to step somewhere and the step isn't there and you know you just your body moves forward. You expect force to meet force and then it doesn't. So your own momentum carries you forward. I think the cross and the power of God are a lot like Aikido. Jesus on the cross absorbs our pain our wrath, our shame, our guilt, our wounds. All of the force that the world could throw at him, he absorbs into himself. And when the world, and us included, expect to be met with force, to meet a wall, to encounter a similar kind of combatant, instead, well, our punch doesn't land. We move Forward, and as the mystic Simone Weil writes, grace is like gravity. It is experienced in the fall. We step expecting all of our energy to be hit in a similar moment, and instead we find ourselves disoriented and disarmed by a sacrificial love that takes and then gives more grace in return. And it disarms us. It disarms the powers of the world. It disarms. Jesus, in that moment, we talked about this over the last couple of weeks, he is canceling all of the things that make this enemy strong. This is what Colossians 2, verse 14 through 15 had just told us. Jesus on the cross destroys the record of debt that we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he exposed them to public disgrace. 
Jesus cancels what makes the weapons feel fearful. He cancels death. He destroys the record of wrong. He cancels death itself. And so the weapons that had power over us that felt so infringing have been removed. By offering himself and forgiving debts, by offering himself and restoring us to right relationship, by offering himself and identifying with our wounds and our fears and our insecurities and our shame, Jesus is disarming the enemy that holds those things over us. Actually, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is from the message translation. I just think this is a really helpful language. This is the passage we read a second ago but from the message. It was sin that made death so frightening. And law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of Jesus Christ. Thank God. I love that word leverage. I think that's so helpful for me to understand what's happening in this moment. That there is sometimes a leverage over humans. Then it plays on our insecurities, it plays on our weaknesses, it plays on our wounds, it plays on the stories that we've told ourselves, it plays on our sin, it plays on our shame. And it is like a leverage that can be pulled and pushed on to open that wound back up. But on the cross, Jesus destroys the leverage. Because it has no power here. Maybe the best example of this comes in John chapter 8. If you know this story, it's quite famous. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's with his disciples. He's teaching, and religious leaders bring before Jesus very cruelly a woman who has somehow been caught in adultery. We don't know a lot of the context of the story, except that these people are using her as a scapegoat before Jesus. And they drag her before Jesus, and the law is pretty clear that she should be stoned. So it's a test for Jesus. If you know the story, Jesus takes a second before responding to them, and then he says very famously, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Which is not the expectation that the religious leaders have in this moment of what Jesus is going to do. They're using this moment to test him, so they think that maybe he's going to fight back, or maybe he's going to agree with them. But to ask this question feels so disarming. And the story says that slowly just people begin to leave. The religious leaders just begin to walk away, not sure what to do with Jesus in this moment, or not sure what to do with this woman in this moment. And as everybody leaves, here's what Jesus says to her. Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Live free. Jesus looks at her and says, they have no power over you. They have no power here. The things that condemn you, the things that accuse you, the stories that would write something else over you, that leverage has been gone. Those weapons have been disarmed. You are an image bearer, beloved and held true. Nothing can change that. That leverage is gone. Those powers disarmed. You are free. Missy, on the cross, God disarms the powers of death, 
powers of fear, the powers of guilt, the powers of sin. Their leverage has been removed. Jesus is victorious over these things for our sake. They try to tell us that we are accused, but God says no. They try to tell us that we are separate from God, but God says no. They try to tell us that we don't belong, but God says that is not true. They have been disarmed, relegated, and embarrassed, as Colossians says. That's the victory of the cross. In his self-sacrificial love, Jesus disarms the powers and the enemies that are fought against us. But it can be hard for us to believe that, I think. And hard for us to live into the victory of God. And so Paul goes on to say this in that 1 Corinthians passage. He says, with all this going on for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground. Which I love that he says this. Stand your ground. The victory is secure. Christ has disarmed the powers of sin, death, guilt, and shame. Those weapons have nothing over you. But that does not mean it doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean this moment isn't difficult. That doesn't mean that those voices don't still whisper over us. It does not mean it is easy to live into victory. So Paul's like, stand your ground. Fight like Jesus. So stand your ground because there is these enemies that wage war against your heart and your life. And yes, they have been disarmed, but it is still the victory you have to live into. I think I love that so much because it's not passive. It's an invitation and an encouragement to have courage, to fight like Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, to don the armor of God and move against these things. Missio, we are called and empowered to join our Aikido master, Jesus, in his fight against the powers that wage war on our own lives. To participate in his work, both in our own hearts, and our own lives, but also in our own communities. To fight like Jesus in a way that disarms, that loves, that welcomes, that heals. We are invited and encouraged and empowered to live into the victory of Jesus. Jesus has been victorious over all things so that you and me and everyone in between can live his victory too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that this Palm Sunday we get to celebrate your peculiar, strange, disarming, disorienting victory over sin, death, guilt, shame, forces of darkness, all the things that would wage war on our hearts and on our lives. You have disarmed them, removing their leverage completely. So God, would you help the folks that are in this room stand their ground? to know who they are in you and to know that they are empowered and called and challenged to participate with you in this world. Help us to live into your peculiar upside-down victory today. 
In your name we pray. Amen.